So we said that Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Uh, we spent time going through the minor prophets and now the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are considered the major prophets. He was a contemporary of Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, and Daniel. He was born about 50 years plus after uh, Isaiah died. So some of the events are going to take place about 100 years afterwards. Keep that in mind. About 600 years before Jesus appeared on earth. Jeremiah has the most words of any book in the Bible. We think of Psalms as being the longest, but in terms of the number of words, if you look at the King James or New King James, it has the most followed by Genesis and then Psalms. Jeremiah 1, 1 and 2 give us a time frame. And very much like when we studied Isaiah, we're going to get indicators of who the king was, which allows us to go back and look at timelines of history and see exactly what was going on. And to cross-reference other passages, and I'm sure a lot of you looked at Second Chronicles and Second Kings and various cross-references for this, and we will do that, as I said, as we go through the study. But we know that Josiah is going to be mentioned as the king. He's going to rule for 31 years. We can see this in Second Chronicles chapter 34. Jeremiah came to the scene 13 years after Josiah began his reign as king of Judah in about 627 B.C. The last dated person in the life of Jeremiah is Gedaliah, who was the governor of Judah, appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. And he was placed in there at about 585 B.C. We know that, again, 586 is usually the date when we have the full fall of Jerusalem, and where the 70 years could be argued to be started. Remember that there's a process here. And, and, and we have to remember that. So we're going to see, for example, that Egypt is going to have some control. Uh, and some of the kings are going to be vassals to Egypt. And then we're going to have a transition to Babylon. And then we're going to have a transition to the Medes and then the Persians. And then the Greeks and then the Romans. And we know that Daniel prophesies about all that. Brother Travis on Sunday led us through some information which was very helpful in my thinking and preparing for this particular study, which I really appreciated that. And again, it gives us confidence, not that we need it, but history is filled with facts. Archaeology is filled with facts. Science is filled with facts. True science, not man-made fantasies, but actual science, which support the biblical accounts. And again, if people are willing to look at the evidence and look at it rationally, they could have their faith shored up by those things, even though the Bible is the best history around. And the Bible's been used by historians to help identify things that took place at that time. And again, Brother Travis covered some of this on Sunday. Jeremiah prophesied for at least 43 years. So when he started prophesying, he was a young man. And as I indicated earlier, a little older than me probably, when he stopped prophesying. And again, uh, during different sections of these years, you had other prophets uh, preaching, whether it's Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, and Daniel. We know the northern kingdom had already been wiped out by the Assyrians. And, and we know that we could look at Amos, Habakkuk, Hosea, and other things. So Judah stood alone. And Jerusalem being in Judah, 
but their days were numbered as well. Not because they didn't have opportunity to turn, but because they refused to turn. Which goes back to a theme we talked about in Isaiah chapter 1 over and over again. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you should be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we certainly can't say that the Lord did not warn his people about what the consequences would be of disobedience. And so we're going to see that there's an interesting verse in the first chapter, which someone has spent uh, to somehow indicate some Calvinistic view of predestination. But how could predestination exist if the people are warned over and over again to turn? How can you turn if you don't have free will? If everything's pre-programmed, doesn't make any sense at all. And remember that Jeremiah is going to be held accountable by God for some of the things he says as we get into chapters 15, 16, etc. And he's going to be told that he needs to repent. And so, even though he's a prophet, he was human. And we know that God's people, as we've studied about in the Sunday morning class, we talked about the resurrection, and we've talked about men like Peter who fled who are soon going to be preaching on the day of Pentecost, the gospel message. People like John, who was the son of thunder, fled. People like Thomas, who doubted, who ended up dying for his faith later on. In other words, God's people, what they have in common is they allow God's word to change them. And the change is reflected in the way they live. And no matter what circumstance they're in, they're going to serve God to the best of their ability. Because, again, we can't control all the things going on in our time. We can't control what nations do, what leaders do, what cultural trends are, what society decides to believe and not to believe in. But we can control how we act. We can control what we believe in, and we can try to be influenced, starting with our families, starting with our brethren, going out to the world, and letting our light shine. So Josiah, as we said, ruled 31 years, followed by Jehoahaz, who only ruled three months. And that's possibly why he's not mentioned in this list that we'll see in chapter 1. Then Jehoiakim, 11 years. And we see during his rule the transition from being a vassal for Egypt to one of Babylonian control. Then Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah, who again is going to try to make an alliance, even though the Lord told him, don't try that, you're being punished, so just accept your role, but he refused to, and he's going to meet his fate, it's a pretty graphic fate, and it probably reminds you in terms of Samson, in terms of the eyes being put out, as we'll talk about. 606 BC is when Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we usually say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are their Babylonian names. And we see a lot. So if you go to, let's say, Jehoiakim, you'll see other names because, again, if the Egyptian pharaoh was in charge, they'd give him an Egyptian name. And if the Babylonian leader was in charge, they'd give him a Babylonian name. It's a sign of who's in control. And, and again, Rod made this point one time that sometimes we remember, need to remember the names that they were given by people who are certain to follow God. right? And we know that Daniel... And these young men, for example, stood up to this powerful Nebuchadnezzar. And again, Travis took us through Sunday about 
some of the behaviors and characteristics of Nebuchadnezzar. The one he pointed out and struck me is that Nebuchadnezzar had been taught a lesson. And as Travis brought up on Sunday, he, he carried it for 12 months. He talked about being hard-headed and he didn't really apply it. But he eventually had it applied to him. And eventually he's going to be humble for it. And of course 586 is when Jerusalem fell completely to the Babylonians. So as I promised, let's get into the text. Let's start with just the first three verses. Make some observations and I'll take any comments of the first three verses. So this is Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priest who were in Athoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So we already said that there's a time stamp here. We know that Josiah was in charge, and we know it was thirteen years into his reign of thirty-one years that Jeremiah is going to be called. Then it says in verse 3, It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So the first three verses gives us a timeline of Jeremiah as a prophet and what he's going to do. From the first king to the last king, if we go through Jeremiah, we know that the governor, as we talked about before, Gedaliah, in about 586, is going to be the vassal governor of that area. Second um, Chronicles chapter 34, verse 9, tells us of a high priest named Hilkiah. And again, you could do your own research and come to your conclusion of this. Um, some say that that's the same Hilkiah mentioned here. I don't necessarily think it is. Why not? Because as it talks about here, it talks about in the land of Benjamin. And of course you know about the Levites. There are eight Hilkiahs, seven depending on how you kept one that I mentioned in the Old Testament. Now again, is this relevant for our understanding of Jeremiah? Which one it is? It's not. I'm just bringing that up. You can do your own research and draw your own conclusion on that. The 13th year of Josiah would have been about 627 B.C. And again, what's interesting about all this is these time stamps. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see uh, Jeremiah at this point as a teenager. So I'm looking at my nephew Luke back there, you know, about your age at that point. And then we're going to see Jeremiah at 20. And then we're going to see Jeremiah at around 26 years old. And then we're going to see him at various points in his life. How many of you have changed as you've aged? And what's interesting is, and, and this is one observation we could certainly make, is, again, young people, when we go through chapter 1, that this work that Jeremiah is going to begin prophesying began with a young man, a young person. Now, I'll just throw that out there, and you're going to give me some correct answers here. Can you think of anyone else who is given a task or responsibility or who served the Lord well at a young age. Okay, I, heard, I heard like three different things. <laughs> well, I, Joseph. I thought Joseph. I think I heard Daniel. I think I heard David. Saul. And what's interesting is, 
is that some of the problems that some of these individuals encountered were at what point in their life? As they aged, right? I mean, as we age, we should become more and more wise, right? In the case of David, we know that one of the difficulties as he aged was the benefits of being the king. And, and again, his tendency to love women. And we can talk about the influence of his father there. And of course, here is this humble Saul who stood above everyone else, was this good-looking young man, right? And then we know it gets to the point where, boy, does he start playing the game, doesn't he? And he actually wants to kill David. And he wants to offer his sacrifices his own way. And he doesn't want to carry out the commandment of the Lord that was given. And he's going to suffer the consequences for that. So just keep that in mind that we're talking about a teenage Jeremiah here when he's called in the first chapter. Any comments on verses 1 through 3 before we continue in the text? Yes. And that's really evident with what we're going to see in terms of his mouth and in terms of what's done a little bit later on. So that's right. And, and again, so you think about someone like Muhammad, the founder of the Islamic faith. And I say this because whether it's Christianity or Islam or any other religion, everything should be open and subject to testing, right? We know that religion was founded on the basis of one person, a revelation to one person that was not confirmed by other sources. But in the Bible, again, was Jeremiah the only prophet at this time? No, so God is communicating through different prophets. He's communicating at different times. The prophecies are going to tie it together. There's going to be abilities and demonstrations by the Lord that these words are indeed true. So in other words, people aren't left to guess whether or not this is a true or real prophet or whether these words are legitimate or not. They're going to be proven. So Alvaro brings up a good point about the humility and the fact that he is speaking the words of the Lord. Now let's make an application to us. Do we have more or less than Jeremiah did? We have more. Do we appreciate that? And the ability for us to know or to put on the word of the Lord, what's it based on? Who is it based on? It's based on us. It's based on how much time we devote to God's word. How much time do we study it? How much time do we understand it? And so again... You know, you, you read all sorts of things, and I, and I try to stay away from a lot of this stuff. I think it's important to think about sometimes. And I just had another conversation yesterday with someone. If someone criticizes the Bible or God's Word, a fair question for you to ask is, have you read it? Another question would be fair to ask is, how much have you read it? Another question to be asked is, do you understand the context of what this is talking about? In other words, we, we don't need to be on the defensive all the time especially with people who are not interested in even examining it or looking at it, right? And again, we have a responsibility to know it, be ready in season, out of season, that we're equipped, that we're prepared. As Timothy, as a young preacher, was taught by Paul that he had to be in presenting the word to others. So I think that's another important point to remember. Anything else from the first couple of verses? Bill, yes. Going on to your point, I would suggest that God wants to use us and have you ever noticed that the Lord eliminates excuses that people have to serve him? Whether it's Moses, whether it's Jeremiah, 
whether it's others we see, that he is going to give the resources and tools necessary for people to be successful. They don't have to rely on their own abilities. They have to rely on him. As we studied about again, at the point where the resurrection is done and now Jesus is appearing to over 500 for a period of time, what did Jesus say would come after he left? The help of the Holy Spirit, right? And once again, we have the completed will of God. So we know exactly what's required of us and exactly what we should do. The question is, do we invest the time? And if you're not sure if that's true or not, then give yourself an opportunity by investing to looking at it for yourself. You don't need to take my word for it. Just for yourself. And again, the, the intrinsic evidence just, just blows the mind when you think deeply about it. I, 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 I keep thinking and getting stuck on the resurrection. And so since we've been in that, I've, I've been, again, going through all the specific details and evidence of, of, of the resurrection. It's just absolutely incredible. And if you compare it to like, because I'm interested in, you know, the judicial system and law and trials and evidence and those types of things. And, and, and it's just overwhelming. People get convicted by 12 people clearly, without any doubt, sometimes on the basis of just one witness. Or on the basis of one piece of evidence. Yet here we are provided with so many different pieces of evidence. And that's why, again... So the historical nature of the book of Jeremiah, I mean, you could, without looking at the Bible, go to other sources. And it will talk about the Babylonian Empire and how it spread and how they fought Egypt, which is alluded to as we go through here. Okay, let's go to verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me. So this is Jeremiah saying this. Saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now, one observation is, God again, and it was said earlier, are we created for a purpose? Do we understand that we are created for a purpose too? You know, we apply this because the Lord specifically talked to Jeremiah and told him what his purpose was. But were we created for a purpose? So one passage that you probably instantly think of is in Ephesians. And usually this is, we only read part of this, or people read part of this. Ephesians chapter 2, and they read verse 8. But let's read past verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Which is absolutely true. Grace is a gift of God. But the question is, how do we receive the gift? And the question is, once we receive the gift, what's required of us? Jesus says, you love me, keep my commandments. Very simple. But then, look what it says in verse 9. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, well, it's not works. But then look what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. And what's the next word? New King James. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Well, that sounds like predestination, doesn't it? The type of person. That we should what? Walk in them. If you could walk in them, logically, what else can you do? Not walk in them. Which again is a choice. 
So we know that Jeremiah was called to this. Is there going to be times where he's going to struggle to do what God told him to do? Is there times where Moses struggled with what he was assigned to do? Did Saul continue on with his purpose of what he was supposed to do? Did David ever stumble? How many examples can we go through of servants of God having a a very real human struggle because of the pressure that was applied to them? And again, within the book of Jeremiah, we can see that he's taken to task for the way he's thinking, for the choices he's making, and God wants to correct it. Did the Holy Spirit, and, and, and having certain powers and abilities, did it prevent the apostles from stumbling? Or did they still have free will? Well, we know they could stumble. What's an example you could think of? Galatians chapter 2, right? And who stumbled in Galatians chapter 2? That's right. And it says here in verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him. Now Paul's doing the speaking here. And by the way, he's writing to the churches of Galatia who were being pulled away from what the gospel was from Judaizing teachers. And they were doing that by choice. Now why would he try to correct them if they didn't have any choice in the matter to to change their way? What does it mean to repent, literally? It means to turn. You are making a choice to turn. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. We talked a lot about the Gentiles in the book of Isaiah. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Does it sound like they're making a choice? And it says, even Barnabas, and and by the way, Barnabas, he was called the son of what? Son of encouragement. Even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. If we're hypocritical, it means we're making a choice. Because what makes us a hypocrite? We proclaim one thing, but then what? Do something else, right? Football guys say, hey, you need to really think about your diet and how you're eating. It's important. Then I go out and you know, get a bag of Doritos after that, that thing's over. Hypocrisy. Now this hypocrisy is more serious though because we're talking about, again, you don't play games with God and with His will and with His people. So again, people that want to talk about, uh, you know, unconditional election and and I only want to spend the time on it with Calvin but we know what the Apostle Paul says so then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God why would we have to give an account of ourselves to God if we didn't have a choice in it how could he hold us accountable we didn't have a choice we were were robots we were simply doing what we were programmed to do so so again that's one thing we know that God's word calls those who have been foreordained into eternal life. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and following, and I'll eventually get there as I'm going through my lessons on 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So again, is there times too where the Lord uses people that we may not think would be very good uh, representatives to do as well? Samson? Go, go ahead and read about Samson again sometime and see what most of his life was. 
It wasn't one of humble service. A lot of foolish and bad choices. But in the end, he redeems himself. He makes the right choice. And what did it take for Samson to get to that point? He lost strength and power and finally trusted on the Lord and acknowledged that the Lord was the one to get that strength. And that allowed him to serve in a way that he was never able to serve before. Any other points from verses 4 and 5? Yes. Well, and, and again, it goes to the point that the servants had to make a choice. So, so that's absolutely right. And, and again, uh, what Alvaro said also fits with verse 5 when it said again. When, now remember, this is Jeremiah speaking to. You're a teenager. You're Luke's age back there. And you're told, Luke, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Uh, imagine that response. You have enough going on right now? I was going to have you stand up and say, hey, but I'm not going to do that to you. Right? So you have to stand up and use, use a visual representation of, of what a teenager would look like. But, but let, let's keep in mind, that's where he was. And yet he was able to accept responsibility. Verse 6. Now here's Jeremiah who's going to speak. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a what? I'm a youth. And this is what Bill was bringing up, right? How many of us in our lives have come up with excuses about why we can't do something? And we built up a case in our mind, and we can make it sound so good. We've all done that with various things in our life. Things that we need to do, responsibilities we have, but we build a case against it. But notice what the Lord says in verse 7. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am a youth. So, so young people in here, you don't have an excuse. In other words, that has nothing to do with it, does it? For you shall go to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Which goes back again to Alvaro's point. So is Jeremiah responsible for figuring out all the messages and what he's going to say? Is, is that his burden? What's he have to do? He has to listen. He has to say what God wanted to say. That's simple. And so sometimes have we found ourselves putting pressure on ourselves about teaching people the gospel or talk about God's word. I've got to find the right mechanism. I have to find the right way to reach this person. And I'm not, we have to go to different points. We know that. I mean, if we're studying with someone that has never studied the Bible before, obviously we have to start different place than someone who has a lot of prior knowledge. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is sometimes the simple approach is the best approach, the direct approach. Something as simple as having someone read a passage and, well, what does it say here? And then discussing it. Instead of us being like, well, I have to find the magic words and I have to say things in just a certain way so they'll respond and listen to it. And anyone that's ever taught, you know that you've put pressure on yourself like that. And we've all done it. And, and, and I know Travis spent a lot of time and we've done that too. We've all put together PowerPoints. How many of you who've taught here before have spent so much time in the PowerPoint you forgot actually what the purpose of the lesson was or what the main purpose? And you get caught up in all these other things. Stop yourself and say, wait a second, what am I trying to communicate? And, and right now I'm in a mode where for the next five weeks I'm reviewing my AP government class because they take the test May 2nd. So everything in there is about that test. And I said, I said, look, some of you aren't going to listen. 
Some of you will. But whether you pass or don't pass this exam is your choice. I'll give you the words. I'll give you the information. I'll give you all the resources. I'll give you all the help you need. But ultimately, how much time they devote to it, how much time they study, how much time they prepare, whose choice is it going to be? It's going to be theirs. So with our own walk and our own faith, whose choice is it going to be? And I was saddened today because I had two conversations. One is a colleague of mine who's in despair and, and, and suffering greatly. A lot of things in his life. Another was a student with similar circumstances. And the principal and I were discussing these two individuals. She brought them up. And, and I pointed out, has anyone ever given God's word a, a try? Has anyone ever looked at that option? And I know for a fact that in the one case, everything else has been tried. You know, therapy. And again, I'm not saying that there's not validity to some of those things. But what I'm saying is, why not try? Why not keep it separate? Especially when we have a God who created us and knows us better than anything. Okay, then, verse 7. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm a youth, for you should go to whom I send you. And whatever I command you shall speak. As we said before, Bill brought up Moses, Exodus 4, verse 10. O Lord, I am not eloquent, neither uh, heretofore, this is King James, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, for I am slow of speech and a slow tongue. So did the Lord say, okay, Moses, you, you make a good point here? No. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the resources you need. And so, so what did the Lord do for Moses? Aaron will help you. You're, you're fine. And, and what did he give Moses to demonstrate his power? He gave him the staff, right? Gave, exactly. So he gave the tools that were, were necessary. So even though Jeremiah was young, the Lord told him, don't fear. And we're going to see this throughout this chapter, that he's going to speak the commandments of God. Okay, now... Uh, let's take a look at verse 8. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. Imagine Jeremiah saying that. And again, we don't know exactly what took place there. We, we can just read what it says. But the word, we could use our mouths to proclaim and speak of God's word. The power of that. And we know what the scriptures say about the power of the tongue, good or bad, and how difficult it is to control. I was just fascinated by this. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. So if you want a key verse for the book of Jeremiah, one of them would be verse 10. Because this gives you an overall view of what his mission is going to be as a prophet, right? To pull down, to root out, to destroy and throw down. But then after those things take place, after Judah is punished for 70 years, what's going to happen afterwards? A return, right? And long term, what is God going to do? 
He's going to give people through his son Christ a path to be part of his kingdom. So the Lord makes promises and fulfills them. The Lord continues to reach out to people, even those who've turned away for generations. And then even in the midst of that, there is the remnant of people. People like Jeremiah who are willing to do his will and his work. Anything on those verses 8 through 10? Bill. Well, I think what you say is important because, again, it goes to what disciples are supposed to do. What disciples are supposed to do, they're supposed to serve, they're supposed to follow, and they're supposed to change and change for the better. That we should be constantly in a state of changing. And again, one measurement of faith is if you're honest with yourselves and you compare your lives now to where you were five years ago, ten years ago, and there hasn't been much change or spiritual growth, then that's an opportunity for us to analyze that and say, what do I need to do to change for the better? Now, another point I wanted to get across here, which is important, is have you ever heard people complain about preaching being too negative? Read through Jeremiah, and you tell me if there's some, quote, negative preaching going on there. Or what would be considered pessimistic or unloving. I've heard people make accusations against preachers because they preach the truth and people characterize them with those things. But if you, you can't help but read Jeremiah and it is straightforward and it is direct. And is it meant to pierce the heart? Is God's word meant to do that where it does cause us to be uncomfortable and to think? Of course. And don't we do that sometimes when we teach our children? We understand that be, them being uncomfortable could be an opportunity to learn a lesson. Or sometimes we know that we may even feel bad. We might have to put a rule because we feel bad about punishing them. But I'll, I'll tell you, and your young parents know this, I will tell you what happens to 16, 17, and 18 year olds that are not disciplined. That, that is really sad. When they have no respect for authority, no respect for law, no respect for adults, and at 16, 17, 18 years old are destroying their lives because no one ever taught them. So it's, be it's better to feel a little guilty when they're young, when you're disciplining, than when they're older. And again, please don't think I'm saying that people can't change because we know people can. And again, that's the power of the gospel. Bob. Bob, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you because again, it's like Paul says, not that I've obtained, I'm going to keep striving. And that's all we do. And, and Brother Young gets frustrated sometimes with himself. Because, again, he's at a different stage of life. But just his presence here can encourage other people. Now, one more observation. I know the bell rang. But in Jeremiah 27 and 28, the prophets and magicians of Zedekiah, who is the last king, convinced him to rebel against Babylon. And even though the Lord says, don't do that, because I'm in charge of this. It's not going to work. And Jeremiah was speaking against that. So imagine being a person who is telling other people that, no, we're not going to be released. We're not going to escape punishment. The 70 years is a done deal. Do you think that would make you popular? And again, I help, can't help but contrast that with the prosperity gospel that is preached today. Where people are taught in error. That 
If they are truly serving God the way he wants, they're going to benefit financially. They're going to be winners. They're going to win in life. You tell me what Jeremiah suffered. You tell me what the apostles suffered. You tell me what mansion they ever got out of it on this earth. What they got was a mansion in heaven. And they got the satisfaction of knowing that they had a purpose on earth. And they had people who loved them and whom they loved. As we talked about in 1 Thessalonians. That they were willing to die for them. That deepness of relationships. Godly marriages where you can have a relationship so intimate and deep. That is just absolutely tremendous. Those are the benefits of following and serving the true and living God. So next week we're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 1. And we'll start with verse 11. Unless there's anything else that you want to go back and discuss. I appreciate everyone's attention.